I'm Jason Mitchell, sustainability strategist for Man Group. You're listening to Perspectives Towards a Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. One of the great conundrums in environmental economics is how best to deal with negative externalities. For instance, how do you make sure that a company under the polluter pays principle really does bear the cost of managing that pollution rather than passing it on to society at large? It turns out it's a question that sometimes becomes incredibly politicized in its solution. And it's a far, far more serious question in the context of climate change, where Earth's resources we're discovering are more finite and fragile than we've assumed. While countries like the United States have seen fierce partisan debate over proposals like a carbon tax and even the acknowledgement of climate change itself, others have been far more ambitious. In 2005, the European Union created the EU ETS, or Emissions Trading Scheme. It's the world's largest carbon market. It's also succeeded in making polluters pay, and it might just reduce pollution levels in the process. But there's still a lot of questions. Like, why is the price of carbon up 250% in the last 12 months? Why has the EU ETS had to endure so many early growing pains? And what other countries will step up to drive the international environmental policy agenda forward as the United States exits the Paris Agreement? To understand more about carbon markets, I sat down with Mark Lewis. Mark is head of research at the Carbon Tracker Initiative, a London-based not-for-profit think tank researching the impact of climate change on financial markets. He's also been one of the leading sell-side research analysts covering climate change and energy markets for the last 15 years. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thank you, Jason. Great, great to, to have you here. Great to be here, too. I'd love for you to talk about how you have gone over the last 15 years plus from investment bank on the research side, where you were one of the top uh, energy utilities and climate change analysts. Um, and you now find yourself, as of a few months ago, at Carbon Tracker, one of the top uh, think tanks uh, studying climate change and, and carbon markets. Right. Well, I mean, um, first of all, I've been doing it a long time, and um, I've found diminishing uh, enjoyment and diminishing marginal utility over the last two or three years. You know, it's a very demanding job being a sell-side analyst. Uh, in addition to all the research you do and all the client meetings, there's a lot of travel. Um, and there comes a point where you say to yourself, I I'm still interested in the same topics, but how can I make the ma maximum impact in a broader sense? You know, not just to my clients uh, when I'm working in a bank, but how do I maximize the value of my research on a broader societal impact, if that doesn't sound too... Um, too pompous. You know, I, you reach a stage in your life where you want to have uh, more of an impact. So there was a personal, a very strong personal reason for going to a think tank NGO that has a tremendous reputation for working in this area. And, um, you, you know, there was also changes to the regulatory mm. regime, uh, the so-called MIFID II regulation, which is make, making life more burdensome for analysts and taking more of the time away from the research and the thinking and the ideas uh, and more or making it into a more of an administrative burden. So the time was right for me. Uh, Carbon Tracker were looking for a new head of research. I knew all the guys there, very familiar and a big fan of their work over the last six years. They've done a lot already to change the debate around climate change in financial markets. And I thought we're, it's ready to go to the next level. And I thought, well, I'm, I'm up for it. And I'm I hope I'm the right person to take the research forward in that context. Great. Well, look, to start off with, let's uh for the people that uh, are listening who are unfamiliar with Carbon Tracker, let's talk about what Carbon Tracker is. Yeah. At its core is this very powerful idea, the so-called 
unburnable carbon idea. That is this core idea that financial markets are not pricing in the risk of climate change to the asset value of fossil fuel companies in the way that they should be doing, and that therefore investors in fossil fuel companies need to be aware of the risk of potential uh, declines in the value of their holdings and the phenomenon of so-called stranded assets, which is where uh, companies invest in assets on the assumption there's going to be continuing very strong demand for fossil fuel in the future, but actually, in our view, um, the uh, demand might not hold up. So companies make investments that end up being stranded and have to write down value and hence investors lose out. So at its essence, that was the um, the brainchild of uh, the founder, Mark Campanale. The first research report they published, Unburnable Carbon, had a tremendous impact back in 2013. And actually, have, they've done a tremendous amount to forward the agenda amongst regulators. I mean, you mentioned in your introduction, Jason, the Financial Stability Board, and Mark Carney, in his capacity as head of the Financial Stability Board, became interested in the idea of unburnable carbon, stranded assets. And I think that did a lot to set in train the momentum for setting up the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. I think now there's a real opportunity because what's – and this was another – a real factor that attracted me to Carbon Tracker. If you think about the impact that idea, the unburnable carbon idea has had so far, it's really been as much, if not more, in the regulatory space than it has been with mainstream investors. Carbon Tracker is now very well established amongst uh, sustainability investors. But I really feel in the last six years, the big change that's been happening in the real world is the continuing decline in the cost of renewables. And these alternative technologies, energy technologies, storage as well now coming up fast, that are going to make life much harder for fossil fuel companies going forward. So what we have now is the economics to back up the original idea. And I think those economics now are only going to gain in momentum and intensity. So it's a great time to be joining an organization which is saying, watch out, there's a risk that the value of fossil fuel holdings is going to fall dramatically in the future because we think the economics are now on our side. It's an easier story to tell, in effect, to mainstream investors. So I guess what's exciting is when you look back over the last 12 months, there has been a complete sea change. I mean, the price of carbon is up almost 250% in the last 12 months. Right. Um, Give us a little bit of context about why that is happening and what's changing um, in the ETS markets. Yeah, absolutely. So the the, the first, to to your questions in order, really. The reason why the price collapsed in the first place from 30 euros a ton, which was in July 2008, the high point when commodity markets worldwide were going crazy, to um, below 3 euros a ton at its absolute nadir, uh, was mainly we got this very large buildup of oversupply. You know, this is a market, it's a cap-and-trade scheme, so the supply side of the equation, until the recent reforms, um, the supply side is fixed. And there's no other commodity market in the world where the supply side is fixed literally decades in advance. Uh, At the same time, demand varies in real time in the same way it does in any other commodity market. So you have this disconnect between fixed supply and varying demand. Demand collapsed after the financial crisis and the ensuing recession. That led to this huge buildup of oversupply, and the market has been laboring under this burden of oversupply for the last six years. What we have now, uh, to your second point, why has the market really recovered, is a reform that effectively introduces a central bank for carbon. This is the... uh, the 
mechanism known as the market stability reserve. And what the market stability reserve will do is effectively remove the very large surplus that has built up. And just to give you, you know, one number that, that clarifies exactly how big that surplus is. In the oil market today, global inventory held against uh, in, in the G20 countries is running at about 17% of annual demand. That's the, the total stock of oil that is held. In the carbon market in Europe, the inventory, the surplus that is held on the balance sheets of the uh, companies participating in it is equivalent to 100% of annual demand for emissions. It's a huge oversupply. Now, the market stability reserve, which starts from January next year, will start removing that oversupply at a rate of 24% a year of the of the annual oversupply. And they will do that by taking supply away from the auctions. And the utility companies in particular rely on that supply from auctions to fulfill their needs. So all of a sudden, come January next year, mm-hmm. the utility companies are going to find there's 40% less supply available against what they're currently able to buy in the market. So that that's going to mean... Um, obviously, a much uh, much more price tension, and it's the speculators. The inter- most inter- interesting thing for me, Jason, is that we are seeing now for the first time in literally years, financial speculators enter this market in size and say, "This is a big supply squeeze coming. We need to be a- ahead of it." And that's what's really driven the price. So let's talk about the oversupply problem in the ETS markets. I mean, first, uh, maybe it would probably help the listeners to sort of hear why we had that you know from my understanding it was um with the creation of the ets markets you had um eu states that sort of looked out for their own self-interests right they wanted to protect their strategic industries and over allocate in the sense yeah i mean problems like that when you look at um the reforms today are those sorted or are there still teething issues? Well, I mean, I think if you go back to the beginning, the, the issue was that the allocations were made on the basis of assumptions about growth before the financial crisis and the ensuing recession. You know, so allocations over the trading period 2008-2012 and to some extent 2013 to 2020 were made on the basis that the EU economy was going to carry on growing very healthily in the way that it was before the financial crisis. The financial crisis blew that apart. And as a result, because the allocation decision had already been made, Many, many companies found that they were still receiving very generous allocations relative to the emissions they were currently um, emitting rather than the ones everybody had expected them to be uh, emitting. So that's why, essentially, that's why the oversupply problem arose. There, There was another reason for it, though. Don't forget that... When the ETS began in 2005, uh, the Kyoto Protocol was up and running, and European companies had the right, under the rules of the ETS, to import 1.6 billion tonnes worth of credits from the, from the Kyoto mechanisms. And that's, again, with the benefit of hindsight, that's added to the oversupply. That was there as a safety valve initially, because people were scared that otherwise carbon prices would go much too high. Mm. Um, so... As I say, it all comes back to the fundamental problem of supply being fixed in advance and demand varying. And the the market stability reserve really ought to resolve that problem. So I do think these teething issues, as you called them, are now resolved with the market stability reserve. I think there's going to be a tremendous 
um, squeeze on the market as a result of this, it's going to push prices up. And I think we may well find ourselves 12, 18 months from now facing the opposite problem from the one we've been dealing with for the last six years, where some member states say, well, hang on a minute, the price is going too high. Mm. Um, so we, it remains to be seen. Uh, there is this other question, though, of how the ETS interreacts with other policy measures, so uh, incentives for renewables and for energy efficiency. I'm very confident that prices in the carbon market are going to continue rising for the next two, three years. I think there's more of a doubt about where prices go beyond that, because if we have continuing very uh, rapid rollout of uh, renewables, enhanced energy efficiency measures, and perhaps even mandated coal plant closures, then you could find that demand for uh, for carbon emission allowances falls again. But the, but the MSR is there to act as a, a stabilizer, and it will do to some extent. But, but it's worth talking about because it's, I can think in my head a few sort of data points. Uh, TrueCost, for instance, has, uh, their TrueCost model has one of the leaders in, in carbon accounting has uh, always used an artificial price, roughly $37.5. Uh, dollars or, or 30, right. 31, 32 euros um, as an input in their models, um, right. uh, which is still, you know, 2x the, the current price. Yeah. Um, there were a number of reports. I remember a famous one, I think in 2011, put out by Mercer Consulting. Yes. Um, that sort of, you know, that, that pointed to $120. Fine. I mean, it, it was, it was, yeah. it was a, a very aspirational target. Sure, sure. <laughs> but, uh, Absolutely. But I guess, you know, there, there are these very high sort of, uh, I don't want to call them price targets, but but sort of expectations out there. Um, how do we get from today, uh, you know, at, at 15 euros to a more meaningful price? And maybe it's worth you touching on the piece of research that uh, you recently came out with at uh, Carbon Tracker. Sure. So we put out a piece uh, three weeks ago called Carbon Clampdown. And really, the purpose of that report was twofold. On the one hand, we're looking at the market as it exists today and uh, the price tension that we think the market stability reserve will reestablish. And I'll come back to the pricing expectations in one second. And then the second dimension to the report was really looking at if and when Europe decides that it wants to put in place emissions targets that are more ambitious and are aligned with the objective of the Paris Agreement on climate change, then the market would have to be tightened even further, and prices would have to rise uh, much more significantly. Now, if you look at the market today and where prices have to go to, in our view, to clear the market, um, I would say on a two-year view, uh, I would have a high level of confidence that prices are going to be in the 25 to 30 euro ton range, because it's only at that price that you start to see um, coal-fired power plants being displaced by gas-fired power plants. And after all, the purpose of this scheme is to incentivize lower carbon intensive fuels to be used or lower carbon intensive activities. Um, and that means, generally speaking, the first large scale opportunity for uh, significant levels of abatement is fuel switching in the power sector. Now, of course, as the power sector in any case starts to become more and more decarbonized, I mentioned renewables, I mentioned energy efficiency, that the power sector is becoming in Europe is, is, is on the way to decarbonization. At some point, you're going to have to grapple with the problem of decarbonizing industry, which is a much tougher nut to crack. 
and requires, therefore, higher prices. What are the few factors that make it such a tough nut to crack? And I'm specifically wondering the social dimension. Absolutely. So this is obviously a huge uh, problem that Europe is is facing, not least because Europe has this extra cost on its industry that many other, most other jurisdictions in the world do not, although China is moving towards establishing a nationwide carbon trading scheme as well. Um, it, It has to be done. You know, this is something that has to be done on a managed basis, allowing for the social dislocation that inevitably this this might bring with it. Um, and it's not an easy uh, question to answer. It varies from country to country and from industry to industry. And some industries face greater international competition than others. It's, it's probably actually easier in the power sector than in the other uh, sectors from a, from a social perspective because the power industry generally does not face international competition. When you're looking at Um, by which I mean competition from from entities outside Europe. If you look at the cement sector or the steel sector, clearly the risk would be that if carbon prices go too high, steel and cement manufacturing companies in Europe would say, well, we might as well relocate to North Africa and and export our activities back in because there's no carbon price Mm -hmm. in North Africa. Now, that's the worst of all worlds because you would lose jobs in Europe and you would also... in all probability, increase carbon emissions globally, uh, the so-called phenomenon of carbon leakage. So I think it's, it's an issue that requires a great deal of thought by policymakers to do it in a managed way. But at the end of the day, it has to be done because we're on a path to, we want to be on a path that's, uh, you know, 195 countries have signed up mm. to the Paris Agreement. And at some point, you have to make that real and time is running out. So it's, it's balancing it in a just fashion. The good news is the cost of energy is falling. The cost of renewables are falling. So over time, if Europe can decarbonize power and at the same time provide clean and cheap power to its industry, if you think of a country like Germany, that has a huge manufacturing base and and is still one of the largest, if not the largest, industrial exporter of things like machinery and so on. Um, Having cheap electricity, and renewables certainly provide cheap uh, electricity and it's getting cheaper all the time, um, is actually a source of competitive advantage, not disadvantage. So it's not all bad news. Higher carbon prices are there to accelerate uh, the momentum behind the clean energy transition has to be managed sensitively from a social perspective. But I don't think the two are necessarily at all as incompatible as often the mainstream political debate would have us believe. There's one other aspect to this which I think is extremely important on the social dimension, and that is the fact that if you look at um, coal-fired generation in Europe and domestic sources of coal production, lignite in particular in Germany and Poland and so on, um, you're not necessarily talking about an absolutely huge number of jobs, but the jobs are concentrated in areas where there are few alternative sources of employment. So that's the problem, that there's a concentration and that you end up with a risk that whole regions can end up becoming left behind. And again, you know, the German government has put in place this coal commission or is in the process of putting in place this coal commission, and that social dimension will be a key element to it. But I don't think ever it should be used as an excuse not to take action on the climate policy side. It is manageable. So, so many people have talked about the death knell of, of the coal industry. I mean, how do you see, as we get a stronger carbon price, how do you see this displacement taking place? Right. Well, you, you know, the best, best answer I can give you is to look at the experience of the UK in the last four years. Um, the UK 
was uh, a market that until really even five or six years ago, coal was providing a very significant chunk of electricity production. Uh, you know, we had 20 gigawatts of electricity capacity in the UK or more. Um, and, um, it, 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 you know, the UK is the heart of the Industrial Revolution, has been using coal for 250, for longer than anybody else, right? So, so coal has this very iconic status in the UK. And you can argue that the Industrial Revolution and the British Empire were built on coal to a certain extent. The UK now is almost coal-free in its power production. Uh, two weeks ago, we went for the first time ever 70 continuous hours without coal-fired electricity production. First time that's happened for over 100 years. So it's quite extraordinary what's happened in the UK. Most of that has happened in the last five years with the introduction of a domestic carbon price in the UK that is well above the European carbon price. So UK power generators for the last two years, three years, have been paying a price uh, closer to 25 euros a tonne. And that's the kind of price, as I signalled earlier, where you do get significant switching of uh, between coal and gas. And therefore, um, we're now at the... So we know, we know what policies get you to where you want to get. Carbon pricing is very effective in, in displacing coal with gas. Um, and most, and the UK has also signalled on top of that, in addition to the economics uh, working in that area, it's given a firm end date for all coal-fired production in the UK of 2025. The reality is, at this rate, we may get there much sooner than expected because economically it won't make any sense to be pr producing coal-fired power in any case. So that's how it happens. You know, if you let the economics work themselves out, if you have the right carbon price, this... Uh, this happens naturally in, in conjunction with the laws of supply and demand. Um, but to your point earlier, we need to ensure that it's done in a just way and, and, and in a uh, socially responsible way. That's, that's the crucial aspect. In all of How about price floors? I mean, the fact that the carbon price is now um, much, much stronger, not strong enough, arguably. Right. Uh, but uh, what about price floors? We've seen a lot of states talk about it. It yeah. hasn't happened at the EU level because no, of uh, disagreement, but the UK, to their credit, right. has created a pretty credible one, and France Absolutely. has talked about it. Yeah. Um, do you still see a role for price floors, or do you think maybe the MSR, the Market Stability Reserve, is, is uh, taking away the need for that? Right. So I'll give you a, my personal view and the theoretical view. Mm. My personal view is the, the Market Stability Reserve probably means we don't need one. Uh, that being said, because I think, you know, we're going to get to a price of 25, 30 euros a ton on, uh, on a two to three view, view, year view, certainly, and possibly, uh, you know, 12 to 18 month view. Uh, having said that, I can see why people uh, would like to see a carbon price floor introduced, because there's no doubt that it gives greater visibility and allows for greater planning in terms of your investments. And it works. We know that. We've seen that with the UK, as we were just discussing. So those are the reasons for supporting it. I think in the practical context of the EU ETS, the problem with the way that the UK introduced their effectively their floor price was that they did it in a way that achieved the desired policy outcome from a UK perspective. The problem was they didn't then offset the impact of a higher price in the UK relative to the rest of the European Union on the price in the Euro European scheme itself. Because in effect, what it means is if you have a higher price in the UK than you have in the rest of Europe coal-fired generation declines, but you've still got the same amount of allowances available. So those allowances become available to coal-fired generators in other parts of Europe. So in effect, you're supplying more uh, 
emission opportunities to the rest of this game. What the UK possibly should have done is to say, okay, we have a mechanism that's going to work for the UK, but we have to offset the negative impact that will have on the EU. The Dutch government, who have announced they want to put in place a a minimum floor price from 2020 at 18 euros a tonne, rising to 43 euros a tonne by 2030, have said explicitly they will compensate for the impact on the EU ETS. However, my fear is, that's an easy thing to say, The problem is politically and technically it's quite complicated because the problem is this. How do you justify to taxpayers selling emissions allowances to power generators in your your country? So the Dutch government will run auctions. Dutch utilities will buy uh, carbon credits in those auctions. They will also allocate for free uh, carbon emission allowances to industry. And then they'll put in place a floor price for Dutch electricity generators that, as I say, will will therefore depress the price in a European context. And, and the argument is they then go into the market, buy up those allowances. Now, first of all, how do you calculate how many allowances you need to buy? That's not as straightforward as it looks. Secondly, how do you justify to your taxpayers that allowances you have auctioned off or allocated for free are going to be bought back by the Dutch government with public money. I think that's quite a difficult sell politically, and nobody has really wrestled with that. And that might be one of the reasons why the UK never went down that route. They just said, OK, we'll do, what, we'll do our own thing, and, and mm. we don't, we're not going to worry about the impact on the... None of this, in, in my view, if you want to view also on, the, on the, whether this is actually going to happen or not, I think the problem is, unless or until Germany signs up to it, this is not going anywhere yeah. on a European-wide basis. Got it. I want to change lanes a little bit and and talk about some other areas that you've been involved with, I mean, specifically TCFT, right. uh, the climate-related financial disclosure effort. Talk about your involvement on TCFD and why this is so important. Yes. So the TCFD was the, um, the brainchild of Mark Carney in his capacity as the uh, chairman of the Financial Stability Boards uh, uh, of the Financial Stability Board. Uh, So that's effectively the closest thing we have to a global financial regulator, right? This is the body set up by the G20. So the Financial Stability Board reports to the G20. And Mark Carney, in part, going back to what we said earlier, um, became sensitized to the question of climate change as a potential risk to the stability of the financial system in, in, in part, perhaps in large part, owing to the work of Carbon Tracker and the unburnable carbon thesis. Um, of course, there was uh, a task, there was a precedent for this because there was a task force set up in the, in the wake of the global financial crisis, again by the FSB, to look at ways in which the global banking system could be made more uh, resilient to the threat of another financial crisis such as the one we had in, in 2007-2008. So Mark Carney is concerned, was concerned, is concerned, remains concerned about the risk that climate change poses to financial stability. And on that basis, he, he, he launched with Michael Bloomberg, who's the chairman of it, um, the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures at the Paris COP in December 2015. And the idea was that a group of individuals from different backgrounds, industrial, financial, uh, investor, uh, would come together 
as a group of industry experts, and I was I was asked I was invited to join in my capacity as a sell side analyst. Who you know we we split it up between data users and data providers. I was there as a data user. I'm someone who in my day job you know needs to go through the disclosures and financial reports of um, utilities in my case and say where is disclosure adequate, where is it inadequate as far as exposing the risks to the financial stability of the companies I'm covering um, and, and how can we improve it. So that was really the idea behind it. And there were 32 of us from different uh, backgrounds. It took us uh, the best part of 18 months to come up with our definitive report, which was published in June uh, of last year. And we're now all about implementation. How do we roll this out? How do we make sure that companies are reporting in line with um, our recommendations? And that's where people like you come into play, Jason. You know, it's, invest- it's up to investors now to push uh, the pressure onto uh, companies and make sure that they are aware that there is a demand here in the market for this. And actually, I've been very... Um, pleasantly surprised. I don't want to sound cynical or anything, but I've been very pleasantly surprised by the impact this has had. I, I thought there was always a risk that there would be a big fanfare around the actual publication and then, okay, fine, that's out there. What's very interesting is that a large number of institutional investors are really running with this and forming their own coalitions, such as the Climate Action 100 Plus, to make sure that uh, companies follow through on this. Yeah, it's become a huge talking point at, at certain AGMs. Right. Um, what are companies doing from a, a TCFD perspective? Absolutely. And it's provided finally some convergence around how to account for this kind of risk, um, where there's, frankly, there's been very little to none. I'm wondering, so what happens now in the sense that companies are required to report on their emissions, um, certainly in the UK, for instance. Yes. Um, But few companies uh, scenario plan against a two degree scenario per the Paris Agreement. Right. Right. Well, you know, that's really (laughs) the the underlying problem, right? That until we had the Paris Agreement, until we had countries committing themselves to genuinely getting onto a two degree track, um, there was no there was no political pressure or there wasn't sufficient anything like sufficient political pressure on companies to take this as seriously as as many people such as carbon tracker uh, have been arguing for many years so the, the first thing is we now have a policy i mean as you said it's not mandatory yet but i think many jurisdictions are looking at the the recommendations and saying this should be made mandatory and then you know, then it follows from that. If we have a two-degree commitment on the part of 195 governments, surely companies should be stress-testing their business models against that pathway. We're not saying um, it, it's certainly not inevitable that we get onto a two-degree pathway. Far from it. But companies need to be uh, letting investors know how they are gauging the risks to which their business models would be exposed if we do get onto a two-degree pathway. And I'll give you one very interesting example in my view. Uh, When we were doing the outreach on the TCFD, a colleague and and myself had a long conversation with the CFO of a North American oil company. And we asked him then, this is September 2016, and we asked him... what, how did they go about thinking about scenario uh, planning? How did they do it? And, and the very interesting answer back, which I think now will come out in the pressure that investors apply, was we don't have a problem doing a two-degree scenario analysis. We'd be very happy to do that, even if we don't think it's, it's going to happen. But 
We don't want to be told whose scenario we have to use. So I think what you're going to have now is the emergence over the next two, three years as investors press for greater disclosure around what companies are doing to stress test their business models. Is a, and, and this goes back to what Carney himself said in his original Tragedy of the Horizon speech at Lloyd's of London in September 2015, is the emergence of a market in a transition to a two-degree world. Because, you know, the IEA, the IEA uh, reference scenario for a 450 scenario is typically the, the benchmark uh, scenario for doing two-degree analysis work. And, you know, it's a, it's a very well-established uh, framework. It has the advantage of being well-known to investors globally and to energy companies globally. But it also has disadvantages. You know, some people say that the IEA has been very far behind the curve on the rollout of renewables and so on. So we can have this debate now for the first time. What the TCFD enables is investors to say, well, we're not sure your two-degree analysis is robust enough, and are you allowing for the speed of the rollout of renewables? I think that's very healthy. I think, uh, for me, the single most important thing Mark Carney said in his um, Tragedy of the Horizon speech was that, that this is all about providing the information that capital markets need to allocate uh, capital efficiently in a two-degree world. And it's this idea of developing a market in the transition to a two-degree world. Nobody has all the answers, but when you get investors asking the right questions, you're more likely to get the right answer. And I think yeah. that's what we do with the, with the TCFD. Got it. So, I mean, there, it sounds like there's a lot to be optimistic about. The big hole in all of this is the United States. Right. And the fact that they've pulled out of the Paris Agreement, the right. fact that uh, the Environmental Protection Agency under uh, Pruitt um, is supporting fossil fuels and and uh, and not clean energy. The fact that there have been so many rollbacks right. uh, from pollution to sort of forward-thinking clean energy technology. Yeah. How do you square that? How do you, right. how do you reconcile that? Well, What's- first of all, yeah. No, great question. I mean, first of all, I'm much more optimistic than I ever dared think I would be five years ago. Why? Because this is all taking place now against the backdrop of continuing falls in renewable energy costs. That is the single most important development. Why did we get why did we get a climate change agreement in Paris when we didn't get one in Copenhagen six years earlier? I think the main reason is the cost of renewables fell so much that it was much easier for governments to turn up and say, you know what, it's maybe not going to be as expensive as we thought to get onto a, a, a two degree. And that cost is falling all the time. And one thing you really have to keep an eye on is the speed with which um, renewable energy is accounting for the annual increase in the, the incremental growth in demand, by which I mean, for example, um, if you look at the growth in, in ele- let's take electricity, where renewables are very strongly uh, present. Um, when electricity, when renewables account for 100% of the incremental growth in, in power demand, then that means by definition, Fossil fuels have peaked in demand for, and they're, thereafter they're on a decline. Okay, now we're still two or three years away from that, but renewables already account for fifty percent of incremental demand. If you compare that with the situation only five years ago, it would have been a much lower number. People are missing the idea of total demand and incremental demand. Renewables are killing it on incremental demand, even in the United States. I, was, I read a, I read a. Uh, a headline yesterday, I haven't seen the underlying report, that onshore 
um, wind costs now in, in Nebraska are below $20 a wow. megawatt hour. Wow. Solar, I don't have to tell you, you know, the cost mm-hmm. of solar in the best locations of the world also down to $20 a megawatt hour. So ultimately, whatever the uh, Trump administration uh, does in terms of uh, policy signals, the economics are there and they're getting better all the time. And investors can see that and companies can see that. So what does it mean for something like COP24 that's going to be held uh, in, in Poland later this year? I guess I'm trying to wonder what the role of the United States will be. Have they effectively consigned themselves to observer status and uh, really won't be an active participant in climate policy setting at a multilateral level going forward? I think you have to distinguish very clearly between the federal level in the United States and the state level and the city level, and frankly, the company level. Um, Clearly, at the federal level, the current administration has signaled its its intention to walk away from Paris. So there's no doubt that they are no longer playing an active role. And I, I, you know, it's well known that the current administration has... Uh, views about fossil fuels that are definitely not compatible with the Paris Agreement. But if you if you look away from the federal level and you look at what's happening in many states, you know California in particular, which has been a global leader on on climate change, uh, Governor Brown there is hosting a big summit in September uh, to push the idea further forward. Uh, Mayor Bloomberg also uh, spearheading uh, m- a lot of great work at the city level, both uh, globally and in the United States, and in his own time as mayor of New York City did a tremendous job in pushing this agenda forward. So I think it's easy to be gloomy about the United States' attitude to all of this if you're just looking at the federal level. If you're looking at the state level, there are tremendous things happening, even in places like Texas, which, you know, again, have this image of being very uh, wedded to fossil fuels because of the political uh, layers there. But as I say, wind costs in Texas now, this is one of the cheapest places on the planet to produce uh, wind energy. When people see that, when they see the benefit of it, when they see the jobs that it creates. Back to your point, Jason, about a just transition. Don't forget, this is an industry that is creating millions of jobs worldwide, new jobs that we're, that are, that are well-paying, high-skilled jobs, engineering jobs, and so on. So there's a very positive agenda behind all of this, even in the US, that I think it's all too easy to miss if you're only looking at the announcements and the tweets, dare I say it, that are coming from the current administration. That's definitely the problem. I mean, it's the tweets, uh, you know, tend to... Uh uh, well, they, they, they yeah. just block everything else yeah, out, they right? They, they, do, get, they get information. <laughs> the mainstream media is looking at the tweets. Yeah. And so it's quite extraordinary. Right. But, there's, but the economics, I, I keep coming back to this. The economics are what have changed in the last five years dramatically, much more dramatically even than most people begin to realize. And once that is grasped, I think financial markets will reprice risk uh, amongst the fossil fuel uh, companies much more aggressively than they are doing today. Because once you reach peak fossil fuel demand, it's game over. I've seen this. I've lived through it as an analyst covering the German utilities. Um, Nobody foresaw back in 2004, 2005, 2006 that we would be where we are today in terms of the share of renewable energy in the mix. Some days in Germany now, you're getting uh, renewables accounting for 60-70% of demand at certain moments in the day when the sun is at its peak. Once you have storage added into the equation at scale, that is going to completely change the game forever. And we're not, 
you know, it, that is not too far away. The one lesson I've learned from my own experience of the energy transition as it's played out in the European power sector over the last decade is things can happen much more quickly than anybody thinks, and in particular even the self-appointed experts amongst whom I count myself uh, would think. And and that is what most people are missing. The mainstream media is way behind the story on this. And um, things are going to change much more quickly than people realize. That's my very strongly held view. Got it. Before we wrap up, is there anything you would want to preview? Maybe uh, a piece of research that might be coming out? Well, we we touched on it earlier. One thing I'm doing as a follow-up to my recent report is uh, some more work on the idea of a carbon floor price. Because I think you mentioned it yourself, Jason. And the French government in particular is pushing this idea hard. They're going to continue to push it hard. And my fear is if and when they get enough support, there are other countries who support it. You know, the Netherlands have already indicated they want to put their own scheme in place. So they're very keen for other countries to adopt a similar policy. The Austrian government is in favor. I think Finland and Sweden on the right terms would be in favor. What for me matters is that if we are going to have a carbon floor price, I mentioned it earlier, I'm not opposed to it in principle, but it has to be done in a way that works with the grain of the EU ETS rather than against it and hence does not dilute the price signal um, that the market stability reserve, which has been a very hard-won reform that took two years politically to get over the line, it would be a, a, a tragic shame, it seems to me, if all that hard work were undermined by floor prices in two or three, four countries that made it cheaper. What's the point of having a floor price in France, the Netherlands, Sweden and Finland if it just makes it easier for Polish lignite uh, generators to emit more? Nobody wants that. But I think... so. I, I I, I think uh, that is an area from a policy point of view that really needs a bit more intellectual rigor. And that's what I'm working on at the moment. Perfect. Look, that's fantastic. Um, I want to say thank you. It's been fascinating to hear about uh, how the EU, after some obviously some early teething problems, is working to reinforce the integrity of its carbon market, which obviously will carry some pretty far reaching implications for fossil fuel sectors like the utilities, the coal sector. Right. Um, so, again, Thank you. Thank it's you for your time. It's been my pleasure, Jason. It's been great, uh, bre- been great coming on, and I hope I've conveyed some of the optimism that it's easy to get pessimistic looking at the state of the world and the state of climate change and so on. These are very serious problems, but there is an optimistic message, and and the economics are pushing us towards a solution. I strongly believe that. Absolutely, you've provided me a nice little pickup at the end of the day. <laughs> great, <laughs> excellent. Thanks, Jason. Take care. Bye. Thanks. Bye. You're listening to Perspectives Toward a Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. I'm Jason Mitchell, sustainability strategist at Man Group. Thanks for joining us, and special thanks to everyone that helped produce this show. To check out more episodes of this podcast, please visit us at man.com forward slash responsible dash investment or look for us on iTunes. <laughs>